Makarja, my friends, I'm Luke. Welcome to the Healing Forest podcast. This is a space where we unearth how nature has rooted and supported our guests to blossom and grow within their own ecosystem and life. Our guest today is the author of The Blissful Breath, business owner of Breathe With Neil, a level three Wim Hof instructor, only a handful in the world, multiple podcast host, father of four, loving husband to Josie, free spirit, and all year round shorts wearer. So, welcome, Neil O'Murku. Konnasatatu, how are you? I'm very well, and that was a lovely introduction. So, thank you very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> Josie would be delighted to get a, get a name check there yeah. as well. Very good. You, um, anything stand out there that you'd be proud of within that list? I think I'm most proud of, um, as, as life progresses, things that I become proud of kind of fade away into significance after a while, except, so, you know, you try to achieve, uh, let's say with the Wim Hof work, you try to achieve level one and level two and level three, and it's significant at the time, but as you continue on you think oh that's really important but it's not really important I suppose on the list there what really stands out to me is um, being a dad is what I'm proud of you know being a husband is what I'm proud of and and the little family we have they're probably my biggest achievement you know if I can get them to adulthood without being as I say to look I know I'm strict but I'm trying to make sure you're not assholes you know mm-hmm. so if I can get them to a state where they're Adults as good people, that would be my greatest achievement, I think. Amazing. Yeah, I resonate with that. Um, yeah, I'd love to drop in just a little bit deeper um, to um, into the space. So just kind of going back to when we met earlier in the forest, uh, allowing ourselves to cast our mind back to that time. Uh, reminding ourselves of the innate connection with the world around us. Um, within the forest earlier, with the creaking of the trees, feeling the power in the wind and the breeze and the leaves underfoot, the chill on the skin, but still everything working in harmony. Neil, what is nature to you? Nature is everything, really. Um, Sometimes we forget that we are a part of nature. And I think the work I do and the work you do in the Healing Forest reminds people that we're just part of this whole. You know, we are nature. The cold and the breathing and being outside brings us back to our nature, to our true nature. So there's a few meanings of it. There's a, there's the world that surrounds us, but it's also the inner world. You know, I like to remind people when we're in very cold conditions, trying to warm up that we are mammals after all, you know, and mammals warm up from the inside out. So we have a very specific exercise to do that. Um, but I think nature is, for me, it's so important to be outside in nature as much as possible. But try to, trying to live 
in the flow of nature as well. So you mentioned in the introduction, I see you're in shorts now today as well. Um, I feel the more we are exposed to nature, the more we get a sense of how it moves and changes, like the seasons, the coldness, the, the short evenings getting longer, all of those things. I think the more we are in, for me, the more I am in, in harmony with that, in balance with that, the better I feel. Um, and that to me is, is nature, finding that flow. Beautiful, yeah. Um, so there's lots of kind of um, breathwork instructors. It's become more popular now and more accessible. But um, I am aware of all the the vast wisdom and knowledge that you have um, and the different modalities um, so I'm looking to explore where we were at like years ago. So 10,000 years ago, 8,000, whatever it was. We, what's our breath like then? You know, why, why do we need someone to guide us here? Or why do we do breath work now? Was there a conscious kind of breath going on before or um, from, through our ancestors? Were they just tuned in? on a level that we can't kind of relate to maybe? It's a beautiful question. Um, and I think it ties us right back into our ancestors and it ties us back in, into the past. Um, but I'll start with the the present first. So once a month, myself and a great friend of mine, Christine, organized a full moon healing circle on Kalini Beach. So we meet on the beach, we do some breathing, uh, we do some yoga, People hop in the, in the sea, we have a great laugh. And when we're on the beach like that, and sometimes during the summer, there might be 1,200 people on the beach. And we're just breathing together. I like there's loads of science now to show us why breathing together is so important and bond, it actually bonds people together. But I often stand on the beach under the full moon looking at everybody doing this, thinking... We are not the first to do this. Like this, we didn't invent this. We have just rediscovered this. The, the elemental feel of when, it doesn't have to be a thousand people. It can be two people, three people. When we get together and breathe, something changes in us. Now you could say, oh, well, that's, that's the same when any humans to get together for anything. And it's true. When we're talking, we're breathing in a different way. When we're singing, we're breathing in a different way. So there's loads of versions of breathing. And when we come together, we are inevitably breathing in a different way together. So it's different by yourself than when it is with a group. So I don't think we've rediscovered anything recently. Sorry, I think we've rediscovered things recently that were always present. And when we go back to our ancestors now, if we jump back thousands and thousands of years, our breathing was very, very similar, I would imagine. Because how we breathe is dictated by the pressure we feel. So when a person is feeling no pressure and they're feeling loose and their body is soft and their mind is open and they're not under any kind of stress or strain, our breathing is generally calm and deep and soft. When that pressure builds and becomes something that pushes us out of balance, becomes stress, our mind starts to focus on the worst case scenario that becomes anxiety. Our breathing then changes. It becomes shallow. It becomes erratic. It, it becomes 
It becomes something that's not in balance anymore. And those two kind of stages, those two kind of phases, when we're breathing calmly and gently and when we're breathing erratically and out of balance, they are dictated by pressure and they are dictated by our nervous system. So our nervous system switches between these two states, the, the sympathetic or stressful state, the parasympathetic or peaceful state, all the time. And it naturally does that. So our ancestors, were they sitting on Kalini Beach 10,000 years ago breathing? Yeah, they probably were. But they might have been in a different kind of gathering. But when they were relaxed, they were breathing like we breathe now. When they were under pressure, and they were under a lot of pressure, they were breathing like we breathe now. The pressure, the type of pressure might be different. We're no longer out hunting and gathering as much. We have different types of pressure. But it still affects the nervous system in the same way as it did 10,000 years ago. Likewise, when we're relaxing now, we're no longer in a cave. Our ancestors, when we were in the cave, could relax and move down into this parasympathetic part of the nervous system and their breathing would get softer and their digestion would start to work better. And they were there, they were in this kind of the opposite of fight or flight, which is rest and recover, rest and digest. That was their sanctuary. Our sanctuaries are probably different now. We don't find a cave and sit in anymore. But how we are now, the the environment in which causes us to breathe in a certain way has changed to our ancestors, but how we breathe is the same. And with those gatherings, then, are there any, um, are you taught Reiki uh, before? Like, is there any other modalities that you're drawing upon energy-wise or um, linguistic-wise or, you know, hypnosis-wise? Is there a rhythm to the, what else is going on? Yeah, um, when I started out in this world uh, a long time ago, 26 years ago, um, I, I used to see the different ways of healing or the different ways of helping people as very distinct from each other. So I would say, look, I'm doing Reiki now. This is herbalism. This is shamanic healing. You know, and I, and I had them all kind of broken down into very specific ways of doing things. But over the years and the decades, what I found is that they've actually just become part of what I do. So I mightn't be saying to myself, okay, I am now going to use a technique from this way of healing or this way of helping people. But when you use them enough and they become part of you, they just become part of what you do. So when I'm standing on the beach and we're breathing together, all the years and decades of training and practice are coming out in that, in that moment in some kind of mix that's kind of unique to that moment like with anybody like we are we are a combination of all our experiences in each moment the combination might be changing to, as, as we're as we're kind of adapting to the situation so for me it's they have started to all, they started to all combine together years and years ago so when someone comes and breeds with me or with somebody else, it's a unique experience based on that person's, you know, experience. So I often think that when, when we're practicing something like meditation, breathing, whatever it is, and we're teaching it, 
the depth of our own practice and understanding comes across in how we, we share that with people. So the way I teach breathing now is totally different than I would have five years ago, 10 years ago. So all the different modalities, all the different ways of healing, all the different ways of, of helping people, as we understand them more and our, and our insights deepen, then we can turn to people and share those with, with them. So it's, it's, it's changing all the time. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? Uh, the evolving of the practice, yeah. Um, who was your main role model in your life, male role model? Hmm. I think there's levels to this question. I think on one level, as I move through different phases of my life, you would see male role models, say teachers or coaches, come and go, depending. So when I'm playing basketball, I would have been obsessed with Michael Jordan. As I moved out of that, you'd be, you know, start to kind of feel guidance from other people. They change. But I think beneath it all, someone like my dad would be the one that's constant. And I didn't realize that at the time. You know, when you're a child, you think your parent is capable of everything. Then you became, become a teenager and you think they don't know anything, you know. And then as I became a father myself, I realized, God, if I can only be half the dad he was, I would be delighted. So it doesn't mean we don't have difference of opinions or difference, kind of agree to disagree on things. But the more I get older, the more my family grows up, I realize how lucky I was to have a dad like I do. And for me, that role model, that influence, that mentor, that's the constant. Yeah, the understanding of mentor held me back um, for quite a while. Yeah. Then I re... It got reframed for me, yeah, by Russell Brand, actually, and a book that he has called Mentors. And um, a person doesn't need to be the perfect human, you know, your mentor, and you can... Um, they can be amazing and inspirational to you in just one aspect, but they don't need to be, um, and that's inspiring to you to improve your own kind of, um, that area in your life. Yeah. But you'd be waiting a long time if you're waiting for someone that was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, more recently I've learned a huge amount from Wim Hof. And if, if for people who have seen Wim Hof online, you know, he's this, big charismatic character but when you meet Wim Hof it's very clear that he is just himself and you can see these amazing strengths but you can also the, see these parts of him you wouldn't want him organizing very much or you wouldn't want him kind of running your logistics for example but that doesn't matter you know because as you said there's these aspects that we have in ourselves there are the things that can help other people. We don't have, we don't need to be good at all, everything. In fact, we're most definitely not. Um, so as you said, if you're waiting for the perfect mentor to arrive, you might be waiting a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I was given this some thought the other day and I thought uh, there was, uh, I was thinking about you and I was thinking what, um, 
the impact that you have had. Um, and I just want to say thanks for being Irish. <laughs> I was like thinking who, there's similarities there. Who was it? And then a, Katie Taylor came to mind. It was like the, how proud I am of you and the, and like, the impact you can have in Ireland is amazing because of the reach of it being an, an island. And then um, the people are so open and the fact that you are like a leading light in breathwork. And so this is not um, like I know a guy who knows a guy. This is like direct people that have had a conversation with me and they wouldn't be here today if that wasn't for you. So going to an event that you've hosted, um, ringing you, connecting with you through Instagram and you responding and you uh, being there to connect with them and give them guidance or just listen to them in whatever way or after an event. But you have impacted people's lives and I know those people. I know some of those people. And... Um, I've heard the stories firsthand um, and they were suicidal previously until they found the breath and you helped them find the breath. Um, and obviously you can go down the um, non-egoic route and sure they found the breath themselves and they had to go to the event themselves and all but I just want to go beyond that and uh, show my appreciation to you um, for doing what you do and having such a huge impact with people and basically saving lives. Um, so, like that. thank you very much for saying that. That means an awful lot uh, to me. Um, often, most often, when you're talking to people, you don't really know what's going on in their lives. So, for me, my mission has always been to try and help people in whatever way I can. So, to know that inadvertently that's happening is very, you know, it's very good to hear that. There, there was a period in, in my time when I discovered Wim Hof probably five years ago or something like that, I would say. And I used to go down, I was under a lot of um, stress in my life. My daughter was acting out um, in many ways. So I went down to Kalini Beach and I used to listen to Wim Hof on YouTube it was 19 minutes, I think it was, three rounds, and then get in the sea. And I did this on my own for maybe a year, three or four times a week. And uh, the journey and the, um, the whole process was so uh, life-changing of, like, breathing in the car and not caring what people thought when they were walking by, like, you know, the simplest of things like that, you know? Yeah. So then like, then I'm realizing, oh, I got a great benefit from this, but yet I'm holding myself back because of people walking by, uh, you know, and is this the way I want to continue living my life? Mm -hmm. But there was a whole, there was a whole mini death experience going on each time. Um, and then I was asking the question, well, maybe I don't like myself, you know, because this is pain. It's pain related. Even the breathing, because it was going deep then, it was kind of overwhelming the breath. So then the pain of the cold sea, obviously, that's a different thing. But 
is there an escalation as there would be with adrenaline, you know, like, oh, I need to go faster, I need to go. Is there an escalation of the pain? Uh, do you feel, do you get addicted to kind of a pain aspect or do you classify it as pain? Well, I love that story um, because it, in essence, it, it talks about one of the most important parts of our, our experience as humans and that is what we think other people are saying about us. You know, the, the pressure of, of other people witnessing what we're doing. So this image of you in the car breathing is something that I love because as we start to get into the breathing and as we start to get into the cold, especially with the Wim Hof Method, and one of the ways in which we warm up after the Wim Hof Method is this legendary horse stance, this kind of low squatting movement that looks like some exotic, exotic kind of dance, you know. And we had the voice in there and, you know, people are very self-conscious of it. But over time, the breathing starts to peel back these layers in us. Over time, the cold starts to peel back these layers in us. And something like the horse dance, after a while, you don't care what people think about you when you're on Kalini Beach, jumping up and down. I was at a retreat there a few days ago and... We had 16 people from all over the place, never met each other, came to the retreat. And within 24 hours, they were saying, Jesus, we're having such great crack. And they were out, the ice bath, jumping around. And they're saying, we're not even drinking. We're jumping around. We, don't even, we didn't even know each other. We're having this great time. And in a way, what the breathing and the cold does for us is it allows us to let go. That pain that you're talking about there, that pain can be a lot of things. And as we go deeper into the breathing, it starts to allow us to let go. So we let go of, oh my God, people, people are looking at me. After a while, you don't care if people are looking at you. You let go of whatever, whatever tension or pain we might be holding in the body. And ultimately, the more we let go, the more we enjoy everything the more we enjoy breathing in the car and saying, fuck it, I don't care if I'm breathing in the car in a car park. The more we enjoy jumping into the sea. People used to say to me, you're mad for getting into the sea. But we enjoy it. You know, we don't care what people think after a while. And the breath, and there's no limit to the experiences we can have with the breathing. There's no limit to it. It's infinite. When we think that we have gone as deep as we can go, there's more there. When we take the breath into the cold and combine them, it brings us back to this moment, the beginning of everything. And by that I mean everybody, you and I, everyone in this room here, have a shared experience. And that is when we're, when we're before we're born and we're in the mother's womb, the mother is doing everything for us, including breathing for us. We are not breathing. She is breathing. And in there, we are protected, we're safe, we're warm. As we are born, whatever way we're born, in whatever country, whatever part of the world we're born in, it's a shocking experience. But the most shocking part of it is the trauma of the cold that we feel when we're born. The cold we feel when we're born, this attack on us from the cold, is the thing that triggers us to take our first breath. 
that then ignites this chain reaction down through the body where our lungs start to open, our heart actually changes kind of shape for a moment and we become alive. And that's from the cold and it triggers our breath. So when you talk about sitting in the car and Kalani breathing and then getting into the cold, on one hand, we're talking about this very specific technique that you're listening to on, on YouTube. But on the other hand, the deeper part, you are returning to the very beginning of your life. We are all returning to the beginning of our life when we start to breathe and use the cold. And from my experience, when we do that, eventually that brings us around to being whole again. So yes, there might be pain on the way to that, but the breath and the cold from the beginning are intrinsically linked together. And even if people are listening to this saying, oh yeah, but I fucking hate the cold. It was there at the beginning of all our lives. It brought us alive. So we can spend the rest of our life recoiling from that primal healing force or we can learn to use it as a force for good in our lives, even if we don't like it. And so that, that, that experience that you had in the car there for me encapsulates, encapsulates nearly the whole human condition in the car, mm. in the car park. Mm. Um, is there like a go-to breath that you go to? I know you have a general awareness of your breath and you catch yourself. I'm sure that you kind of catch yourself and, and you're present with the breath, but is there a go-to that you go to for the breath like before, um, before bed or before a stressful moment or is it different things for different moments? I had somebody ask me um, a similar question very recently and they were confused. They were saying, oh my God, I've looked online. There's so many ways of breathing. Which one do I use for which thing? Um, so I'll answer your specific question in, in, in a second. But if anybody's listening and thinking the same thing, like what do I, what do I do with the breath that's here all the time? How do I... On the most basic level, even bringing our attention to, to our breath, even for a minute, begins to slow it down, begins to calm the breath. How we breathe is how we feel. So if our breathing is quick and fast and erratic, that's how we feel. If we bring our attention to our breath, even for a moment, it immediately starts to change. It immediately becomes a little softer, a little deeper. Then we start to change we feel a little calmer, a little more peaceful. So for heading into a difficult situation, into a stressful situation, we can change that a little bit. We can focus on our breath for a moment. We can feel it. We can feel that change in it. But by focusing on our exhale and continuing to focus on our exhale and elongating that exhale a little bit, that then starts to unwind the nervous system and helps us grab control of those feelings of anxiety or nervousness before a difficult thing that we're going to do. So that's one example of how to use it. Anything that forces us into a state where we feel uncertain or fearful or worried or frightened, focusing on that exhale will change how we feel. Before going to the bed, the bed was another example you had there. Before going to bed, just bring the attention back to the breath. Just listen to the breath. Even that starts to slow it down. But if you're lying there in bed 
and you're not feeling particularly peaceful and maybe there's something that's running through your head and you can't go to sleep, come back to that long exhale. We don't have to be in a situation like going live on TV or about to go into a difficult meeting. We don't have to be actually physically doing something like that to feel those same so it's those same feelings of anxiety and stress. We can think ourselves into those ones. So if we can think ourselves into it, the breath helps us think ourselves back out of it. So focusing on that long exhale is nearly the remedy to all our problems. Yeah, like the second you were talking about the breath, then it makes me aware of my breath. It's um, if you can have, if you can uh, cultivate that inner dialogue to have awareness um, to be present with the breath and elongate the yeah that's a good one because I as you were saying there then I was visualizing myself going to bed tonight and trying to breathe out more than I'm kind of breathing yeah, in you yeah. know to let the stress yeah and and like we know biologically that it works you know it works it's probably the most effective way of breathing to deal with stress to deal with with anything as we start to focus on that long exhale we move more into the parasympathetic peaceful part of the nervous system vagus nerve activates drops the heart rate softens the body and helps us move into that place where we feel safe again and when we feel safe then the body can heal itself the body can restore itself and eventually we can nod off to sleep so like so during stressful times let's say casting memory back you've twins i'm sure that was a, a tough kind of uh, moment <laughs> that, was a, that was a difficult phone call still a tough, <laughs> it's, still a, it's still a tough time a few years later but uh even i suppose maybe the third or fourth kids maybe a little bit easier because you know you have an idea from the first two but um maybe the first child then you know the uncertainty and all mm. that so <clears throat> when he was born was there a um was there a going to nature? Was there like a going to the sea? Was there like, what was your uh, safe place or whatever well, term you want to put on it? Yeah, our first child, he's 14 now. Um, his entrance into the world was extraordinarily dramatic. So he was born at just about 29 weeks. So way too early. Um he was about three pounds. He looked like a little bird. And he spent his first three weeks in an incubator in, in, in the Coombe Hospital. And it was, you know, it was an earth shattering experience those few weeks. But within that, as you said, there was lots to learn, you know, and, and there was, he, I remember the first night in, in the incubator, I was watching him. So this is in, in the, um, what do they call it? The intensive care unit in the coom. And this tiny little bird of a human is there fighting for his life. And I remember thinking to myself, how does he know to fight? You know, how do, why is he fighting? You know, he could have just slipped back away to wherever he came from. And looking at him there has always stuck with me. You know, this, this idea that we want to live. We want this experience, whatever this experience might be. And so in those three weeks in the hospital, there was very little, as you were describing there, a place for us to go 
to deal with it. You know, Josie was downstairs. We happened to live beside the coombe, thankfully, at that time. So we were in all the time. But you know, hospitals are these, they're amazing for emergencies, but they're not a healing place. So those three weeks we were just in, in hospitals, uh, dealing with all that stuff. So there was nowhere for us to go except inside. So we could only find a sanctuary within ourselves, you know, which is, you could argue is where we always find it. So in those moments, sitting in a corridor outside the emergency unit or, you know, downstairs in the Starbucks, it was learning just to, to use the breath to let go a little bit, you know, because obviously as a first time parent, you have no idea what's going on. And as a parent in a situation like that, you have, you're hearing other parents being told their child has just died. You, you know, you're hearing all these things in the emergency unit. So it's a time of extreme uncertainty. But again, just having the, well, you, you don't have the, you don't have the kind of option because you're exhausted and you're sitting there and you're looking for something to help you. And again, by just breathing for a few minutes in Starbucks, you know, that was, that was the place that I would go to to help me kind of recuperate before I went back upstairs to the fifth floor and had to, you know, um, experience this whole thing again. And the, the happy ending is that he came out quickly and he's a big bruiser of a, of a young man now. Um, but, but like all difficult situations, there are profound things to learn in the, in the midst of it, including that idea that if I could have got to the sea, I would have got to the sea. You know, that's where I'm born by the sea, raised by the sea. Um, but in that situation, it was it was too far from the coom, so we had to use the breath instead. Mm. I got a sense of his, uh, yeah, of his energy, of his presence. I've never even seen him or uh, seen you with him or heard him or anything like that. But the, um, there's uh, like a term for. Um, for children that uh so which one of your child is the anchor so an anchor is like um, a point of reference for how your family is doing um so my second is the one for that and i kind of got the sense that there was something different as obviously they're all special but there is for me, my second one, I keep a bit more of an eye on, you know, and I check in and how he is emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically to, um, as a gauger for the family, you know, um, and how we're doing as a unit. Um, which child do you feel is kind of that? Great question. I don't know if that makes sense, does it? Yeah, yeah, it's a great or, question. Do, does, yeah. does someone spring to mind when I say I was saying that? Yeah. Um, so I think I love that idea, you know, that that the child would be a gauge for where the family is as a unit. Um, and I think Blaze, who's our first one, um, is definitely, definitely that, you know, his name is Blaze. It's, it's, it's from, it's from the Irish actually, mm. Blot, from Bloss and, and Blahana and it kind of morphed over years into Blaze, um, many thousands of years ago, but but it also has the English meaning of it, which is like a blaze a trail. You know, he's always the pioneer. He's always the first one to, to, to you know, to do things. And when he is in balance, we're, we're, we're all kind of feeling like that, you know, but that idea of the anchor is a fascinating idea. And 
he is now entering mid-teens, you know, and all the hormones and, and and everything that comes with that, you know, and, and in a way they're all just following and we're all <laughs> we're all in this new journey. I actually used to think I was a good parent to to the four of them up until about they were eleven or twelve. You know, after twelve years you feel like you've got the skills now and experience. And now it's like a new game entirely. You know, they're nearly all teenagers and it's just like I'm a I'm a parent again trying to figure this game out. <laughs> so come back to me in ten years and yeah. I'll have another answer for you. Brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting. Otherwise, I feel, yeah, same with kind of like the breadth where uh, you bring an awareness to a focal point. And with that, it's kind of like I was firefighting a bit until I heard that kind of terminology, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, so my my six-year-old is, you know, quite um, spirited, let's say, you know, expressive, yeah. you know, so then this is how I deal with him. And then, then my wife, she's a bit, you know, so there's all the beliefs. But then when there's... um shifting of that to kind of oh this there's a different gauge you know there's an anchor and then i see the development in him so he's 12 now like he's a young man and um yeah it's a good reference point to kind of just check in with how i'm doing and how things are progressing and how he is developing uh, and the impact that he has influences on kind of a even on his 18 year old sister yeah, you know, and a six year old, you yeah. know, so there's a whole unit there. Um, instead of being dragged around all, all the time to different kind of. Um, so your oldest is 18. Yeah. So you've been through the teenage years. She started her teenage years, yeah, when she was 12. Never forget it. And it was um, life changing. So that's why we set up the healing forest. Yeah. Yeah. So it was um, incredible, maybe four years of stuff that made no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you world. Yeah. Oh, it was, um, yeah, it was life-changing, as I say. So I stopped, I put in place, you know, changing to uh, leaving the construction industry and um, and from bringing her to uh, maybe 10 or 12 different kind of um, counsellors and psychoanalysts and um, psychotherapists and stuff like that, um, and none of them working on her never wanting to go back ever again. Okay. And, you know, like yeah. the obvious thing of like, how can they help me? They don't even know me, you know? Yeah. It's like, well, you're forming a relationship here. And, you know, yeah, all yeah. the rational yeah, crap, yeah, crap yeah. that goes on. <laughs> she and was then, cutting through all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> so the, exactly. And she made me see that all that was bullshit. All my explanation and in the head process was, yeah. So, um, uh, I've no uh, words, but looking, reflecting back on it, um, I feel like there was, you were kind of saying it as in like, uh, maybe a bit of apprehension about something, uh, teenage years, but um, uh, an advice kind of aspect, I suppose, is that you're holding space as you do so well, you know, for 1,200 people, basically, you know, and... um, does change slightly when you care so much about them. So I find it a good uh, reminder that I am just holding space for yeah, them. That's uh, I've kind of slowly come to that realization. Um, our girls are nearly ten, but they've been women, twenty-seven-year-olds since they were born. You know, they came out just like these fully formed women. 
So it's been, um, yeah, you so see, your description is perfect. I try to kind of set the boundaries and hold the boundaries and let them kind of run between, you know, run, run and push against them. Yeah, that was the thing when she was 12 or 13. There was a, a time of about two years that I had to, it helped me anyway to accept that she's a woman now. Yeah. You know, because when I was in parent mode, I had to teach her something. Yeah. You know, and then there was a talking at and then not being received. And then there was a talking more at her because I noticed that she wasn't receiving. So it was like, <laughs> to talk more at her at a higher level. Louder and yeah. faster. <laughs> like, like, yeah, exactly. I'm going to push this on. But when I wouldn't dare talk to uh, someone that I loved, a friend or uh or my wife in that way, you know, because yeah. there's that respect and there's like, but when the parent mind of mine kicked in, it was like, no, she needs this and I know better. And, you yeah. know, but then it, it, it switched the whole relationship. I saw her as a woman. So regardless of age. So then she left school and she got a job. Uh, and then she's like managing now and she's on her like fourth car that she's bought and she's, going to she's doing psychology and like she's doing a master you know so it, wow. you know it just projects but i felt on reflection now years later that i was she had had a divine path or like um yeah she was listening to herself having these um outbursts and kind of um expressing herself the way that she felt was the way to do it and yeah. finding herself you know and i was restricting that yeah, yeah. And I kept on trying to restrict it yeah. for safety reasons. Yeah. yeah. So um, once I let go, then there was a blossoming. And that comes back to what we were saying about the the breathing and the cold. It's about letting go. Like you can't fight the cold. You can't push against the cold. You just have to surrender to it. And I think that's for me was one of the biggest lessons of the cold. And it's a lesson that applies to, I think, everything. Parenting including. Mm. Yeah. I did the kind of online Wim Hof uh, training and I um, and I saw that um, the next stage was basically to go to Poland. Yeah. So I applied and, and they were like, oh yeah, we're moving it to Spain and you know, it's 150 people. And I was like, oh, ah, okay, so this is not, so I got put off that and now I see, I think that they're going, they're doing the Poland thing again, as far as I'm aware, is that right? Um, it's changing. So the academy is now moving to the Pyrenees. So I've been there. I'm actually okay. going there in a couple of weeks. Okay. Um, it's on the on the kind of Spanish border. It's this unbelievable place. So at the bottom of the Pyrenees, even in the summertime, it might be 40 degrees. And at the top, it's full of snow. Huh. So you hike up from one world to the other. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a, a very unusual experience. I think I'll revisit it because... Obviously, saying quite a lot about me and what I was, what I was looking for. I was looking for this extreme challenge, kind of you know, that was going to evoke change in me. You know? So there's probably two. There's probably two things going on, and I think this is what the what they've tried to do. When I was learning to be a Wim Hof instructor, it was very different. It was in the early days, and the experiences were kind of mixed together. So we would go to learn how to be instructors. And also climb up the mountains and do all that kind of stuff in Poland. What was kind of realized over time was that to be a great instructor, you didn't need to climb up the mountain in Poland. It's a great addition to it. But if it's about being a great instructor, that's a different set of skills. So they've tried to separate the two experiences out. So the becoming an instructor now 
the standard of people, the standard of instructors coming out the end of the academy now after the year of training is far higher than it was when I was doing it because the teaching is of a really high quality. Everything, everything's been learned by, by you know, by making mistakes and getting things right. And then there's also those experiences that you're talking about, which are the winter travel experiences. So the way it's kind of talked about now is like, if you want to be a great instructor, you go through the academy. And they even have instructors that then go on the winter travels, buying a ticket and doing all the great stuff like climbing up mountains in your shorts and, you know, experiencing that. So I've experienced all of it. And I think the, I think what they have done is actually better for, for everybody is that if you want that, and it is a life-changing experience going up the Polish mountains and that whole thing that is accessible to everybody and you go you go and buy a ticket for that and if you want to be in a great instructor you go and you know how that can also change your life you buy a ticket for that but they're not the same they're not just overlapping anymore um so loads of instructors i was actually talking to an instructor the other day and he is buying himself a ticket for the winter travel because he wants to do all that stuff without having to do the assessments at the same time so we had to do the assessments at the same time as well as all the great adventurous stuff. Um, but it's nice not to be kind of on duty. He can be off duty and he can just enjoy it. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I didn't, as I was saying, yeah, it was, yeah, to do with me. And yeah, I, I look back into it. Um, you must have had some pretty amazing snow and ice up in the up in the forest there that, last month when it was yeah. cold here in Dublin. You could be running around there in your shorts. Then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> running around the forest in the nude, as I usually do. Um, we were snowed in when, you know, well, I have a small little car that wouldn't be so good for the snow, but um, uh, snowed in two days. I was snowed in. My wife had the, has a, a kind of a, a jeepy thing. Um so, but my car couldn't get up or down the drive for two days. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah. No, and I do, I do, um, um, visit the cold all the time, you know, uh, because I know what a great teacher it is with the cold showers and, um, purposely not wearing jackets and stuff like that, yeah. you know, so it's like, it's a beautiful relationship that I have with it. Um, yeah. Um, where I was going with that one before was that from doing the breath, um, I noticed that, yeah, it would need to be on like the second round, I'd get to a kind of a certain stage. But now it's kind of on the, within a couple of breaths, then I get the tingling and I get the kind of visuals. And um, it's one of the main ways I'd visit my dad, I'd say. You know, and he comes up and he's like in this little kind of square and like, uh, and he's right in front of me there. And uh, it's like a knowing that it's him as opposed to kind of a perfect uh, picture of him. Um, so I'd say you must have had some wild experiences, especially when you go up the levels and you're kind of doing deeper and also different modalities. What's kind of the wildest or kind of, you know, trippiest or most impactful kind of visual breathwork experience you'd say um it's a it's a great question um i am an, a great person for seeing loads of visual things when i'm doing the breathing uh, i hear other people's like your just description there and i think oh, feck it, i love i love a bit more of that um 
every time you do the breathing, it's different. Sometimes you have these like these profound insights into things. Sometimes you feel like you're in outer space in other dimensions. Sometimes you don't feel any of that. It's always different. And one is not necessarily better than the other. But I suppose the the most profound experience I've had from the breathing. Now I have now to be honest, I have profound experiences with the breathing nearly every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um there might be psychedelic experiences, but a, a friend of mine recently described it like little truth bombs going off in your head, you know, these insights. But I suppose the biggest the biggest experience I had, and I, and I write about it in the blissful breath. Um, was during this very extreme kind of breathing session where we were going, you know, going quite deep on it. And in the midst of it, I had this um, this revelation about my my grandmother was was in my mind, in my memory, a very mean person, you know. And you know, in my, you know, I had this idea that your grandparents had to be nice, you know. And so she was a very mean person. And in the midst of, of all of this, I realized that the reason she had come across like that to me as a child was that my grandfather had died when she was young and she had this fear of being poor, which is true, you know, and as an adult when I look back at it. And that her fear of that came across as this kind of mean-spirited behavior all the time. And in the depths of the breathing, I realized that by me holding on to this story about my granny, I didn't... The fact I'm actually calling her my granny now is actually a big thing because I used to call her Vera, you know. But in the midst of that breathing, I realized that me holding on to this story about her being mean and all that kind of stuff was affecting my relationships with the other women in my life, with my wife, with my sister, with, you know, with my mom. And so I came out of the breathing session and I was totally changed. And in that breathing session, I'd actually seen my granny aka Vera, I had seen, I, I had forgiven her, you know, for what I felt was kind of mean behavior to me as a child. And that was just from breathing. I came up out of the experience and everything was changed. I had this revelation about why she had been like that, this revelation about how it had still been affecting all the relationships in my life. I was able to kind of fix it, for want of a better word, in the breathing. And I came up out of it and I turned to, uh, a friend of mine, Isaac, beside me. And I was like, oh, I told him all this. And Isaac had just had a grand breathing session. You know, he had, he had had his own experience, but it taught me lots of things. It taught me that the breathing can be extraordinarily profound and very healing. But it also told me that the person beside you might be have, is having a totally different experience. And for him, it was just a grand breathing session. He felt none of that. And the other lesson it taught me was that having had this really really profound experience. The human nature is to crave that again. So the next morning I said to myself, right, I'm going back down into the depths to do this again, to see what else can happen down there. Which of course is the striving, the grasping, the clinging, which the Buddhists, you know, the Buddhists are always talking about, you can't lose what you don't cling to. So if you let go of things, you know, you're free. But I was clinging to this expectation that I wanted this thing again. So I lay down and started doing the breathing again. But of course the breathing, it wasn't going to happen again. My body wouldn't allow that same intensity of the breathing. 
So after a few minutes, I got up and thought to myself, okay, 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 there's the lesson. You know, you, you, you know, we're different every time we breathe. You know, that happens every now and then. It's not going to happen every day. I shouldn't be looking for it. The more I look for it, the less I'll find it. So you have a full range of experiences with, with the breathing. But it, for anybody practicing breathing, conscious breathing, we don't need those experiences for us to have a profound effect on our health, on our mood, on on how we behave, how we deal with pressure, how we think. If we move our lungs in a, in a certain way, it influences the brain. The brain influences the biology of the body. Our minds then are influenced as well. So we don't have to have the profound experience to have deep and long-lasting benefits from the breathing. So if somebody's trying to chase that feeling, let the feeling go and just breathe. We were just talking about the your relations, your your grandmother. Um and there was um a death in the family recently, um with Josie's mother. Um I wouldn't mind exploring that with you if that was possible. Yeah. Um because I'm aware of the importance of elders now, even more so. Um, can you tell us a bit about her? Yeah, um, Gags, as we call her, or Gaga, aka Agnes, um, was an amazing person. She had. She comes from this mountain in Mayo that overlooks the sea. That is literally at the end of the road. You come out to Ballycastle Village. You go up a road, up another road, up the mountain keep going at the very end of the road is this cottage tucked in you know just in the bottom of the mountain with a, with a little river running by it and when she was in her teens she had to leave this paradise of a place and go and work in London so it used to take her days to get from from Ballycastle out to London and she stayed and lived in London and had a family and businesses in London for maybe 40 years so she had seen she saw a lot of the world in London and she she had a family, four children, Josie being one of them. And what really impressed me about Gags was that she was a pioneer in, in lots of ways. She was a woman in business, which was unusual. She was an Irish woman in business in London, which was even more unusual. Um, and she had to be tough to, to, to deal with that. She told us one day that uh, she, had a, she had a nursing home and that uh, the intelligence agency in the UK, I don't know if it's MI5 or MI6, whichever one is the internal agency, they kept coming and harassing her about the Irish people working in, this is the 60s or 70s, in, in, the, in her business, saying they were terrorists or whatever it was. And Gags loved smoking. You know, so she'd be standing there smoking the fags, as she called them, looking at these fellas, kind of shooing them off the property, you know. And the strength it took to kind of deal with that kind of stuff. So she was an amazing character. And um, we were very lucky that just the way things developed, she lived. She has lived with us for the last 13 years. So all our children, all they ever knew was that through our kitchen was a little door and I went to another room. And at the back of that was Gags' rooms back there. So they always had Gaga there, you know. So as you said, the importance of elders. Now, most people could not live with their mother-in-law. I had such love for Agnes and we always got on. Now, we didn't always agree with everything. 
she has this very open mind, but you, her, her views on things were often different to mine. But we got on so well, you know, so, and the children loved having a grandparent right there in the house. So when she, yeah, and she was so practical in lots of ways, as she was, as she was dying, she got a, she got a, like a four week kind of uh, prediction from, from the doctor saying, you know, um, you know, it's before weeks, that's all you, got, you have. And at this stage now, she was mid eighties and all she did was smoke, drink cups of tea, eat white bread with about an inch of butter on it. You know, like, the, for, and there's me drinking kale shakes, you know, like, but she was up until that point, up until the point that it started to unwind, she was an unbelievably healthy, vital woman. And I would be sitting in the ice bath on our patio out the back and Gags would be leaning out the window, smoking her fags out the window, you know. So we had this amazing relationship and um, it is, it's unbelievably sad to watch somebody die. You've, 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 you've been there, the grief and, 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 the, and the trauma and the shock that comes with that. But being a little bit older now, there's also huge lessons on how to live by watching someone die. So Gags being very practical, had we had for the previous maybe year or two, me not knowing that she had some sense that her end was coming. We had been helping her make sure all her things were in order, all her affairs were in order. Now I thought we were doing it because she had loads of time to go. But somewhere in her, maybe she knew her time was a little shorter. And at the very, she had a list of things that she wanted done and we were going through the list of things and as the time was winding down and her health was, she was kind of, she was kind of falling apart as we were going and she had a, a li her list of things we were working. Maybe two days before she died, we had one or two things left on the list and they were done. And I was watching her lying there and she was totally at peace. She was totally at peace with what was going on. She had surrendered. All the things in her list were done. Her husband had died. Sean had died years before. Her son had died years before. You know, all the people that she loved had died. She was the last one of, of her generation. And watching somebody there totally at peace made me think, my God, you know, how, in a way, how lucky she was. We were all with her when she died. All her affairs were done. You know, she had worked all her life really hard and she was able to have this peaceful, peaceful death. But watching her die also made me think about how finite this experience is. Like you and I are here talking and somewhere in my mind, it nearly feels like Ashley will always be talking. You know, I can always send you a text message or something or I can always give my child a hug. But they are all finite things. There will be a time when we're not able to talk like this. And in some of the breeding traditions, they don't measure time or a lifetime in time, they measure it in breaths. So in some of the traditions, they feel that everyone's born with a certain number of breaths. And at the end of that number, you're, you're finished. You start your life with your breath, you end it with the last one. So you can see how the breathing practices of the slow, calm breathing kind of kick in there. You know, you have a bit longer to go. You know, and I'm watching Gags die. I was just thought to myself, you know, I, I know we talk about life being precious and having to enjoy every moment, but it really, it really nailed that into me that 
every hug with somebody, and I'm not being morbid, but could be the last one. Every time I say goodbye to the people I love, eventually it'll be the last time I ever say it. So that really, you know, gags in a way, in her own way, was really teaching us in those last few moments to to embrace life. So so on our mantelpiece over, our, the, our, we have a, a fire in the house, it's an old fireplace, and we have gags and a picture from the 60s in London and a beautiful ball gown. We have two candles there and I, and I see her every day. And, you know, when you look back at someone's life and they don't have to have a great life or a famous life or anything, but when you see what, what how, how much people mean to other people, it's inspiring. You know, I feel like watching gags die has been like a freedom for me to say, oh, fuck this, you know, whatever things I thought, will I do that? Or, you know, am I afraid of doing this or that? All that's kind of fallen away. I just feel now that I have to fully embrace everything and, and go for everything. Not sporadically kind of like, oh, I'll do this, but the things that I think are important, nothing's holding me back anymore, even if I'm fearful of them, because the time will come when, I don't have the energy. The time will come when my time is done. And when I'm lying there like gags, hopefully I'm as organized as her and have the list ticked off. But even if I'm not, even if that final moment is is traumatic or whatever it is, in that last moment of consciousness, I want to feel that I have given everything. Maybe not got it right. Actually, definitely not got it right every time. But that I gave it all. So I have to thank Gags for those lessons. Yeah, what a blessing. And uh, yeah, so uh, inspiring, so amazing that you're able to acknowledge the blessing that she gave to you in that moment. You know, a lot of people would um, shy away and, you know, they have um, their own issues or hang-ups with, with death itself, you know, so then they avoid that interaction. So... Um, it sounds like a real blessing and a huge um, development for you uh, as a family yeah. to be able to be part of that, you know. Um, yeah, thank you very much for sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so moving forward to what's kind of coming up next for you and Breathe With Neil and um, your offerings. What's, like, what's the most, what's the, what's exciting you the most that's coming up in the, in the near future? There's a couple of things that uh, are unbelievably exciting to me, but unfortunately I can't tell you about them yet. And also my second book is coming out later in the year. That's not, there's a, there's a couple of things that will become, that I could be able to talk about in a few months that, that are really exciting me. But I suppose ultimately um, it's about reaching not more people necessarily, but about reaching the people that need it. So by that I mean, we'll have all our great events all over Ireland and in the UK as well but also doing a lot more online work for, for people who can't be in Ireland. You know, so we're going to be doing uh, weekly breathing classes online. We have we have a whole breathing program for teenagers and, and children to help them find a sense of calm and, and uh, 
you know, even if they're stressed, teaching them how to breathe in a way that helps them. Um, so we're, we're Josie and I are working on ways in which that we can reach people and help them without us having to be there all the time, because there's only a certain amount of time that we have. So that's exciting to me that we can we have people in Korea that that you know buy our courses. We have people in Australia and, and places like that that they can engage with, the, with what we're doing as well, and that's of course pushed out by. Uh, the Breathe with Neil podcast and and the second podcast that I'm doing, Find the Others with Brian Penny, the the neuroscientist. So you know, uh, so they're all amazing things that I'm you know that keep me uh, excited for sure. Yeah, excited and busy, I'd say. Yeah. Yes. Um. So where can people kind of keep an eye on you and see your offerings and get involved in in what you're doing? Yeah, just go to Breathe with N I A L L dot com, Breathe with Neil dot com. I'm the same on Instagram, Facebook. And even TikTok. <laughs> there you go. I only joined TikTok last week. Oh my god! Uh, my my daughter's like, yeah. And you just you just keep on swiping. And he's like, it's like I don't want to. I don't want to swipe, and I don't want to watch like that. What is? Why would you know? He's like, and she goes, oh no no, you'll you'll be doing that soon now in the forest. That's gone. Yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. But I don't really and she's like, Oh, this this controls your feed of what you can see. And so I don't I'm just gonna go in and do a video and then both <laughs> it. I'm not gonna be watching any of here. You know. I feel the same. Um and it is a kind of generational thing, I think, as well, but it's also where our practice is for me, um, the more distracted I am, the less present I am, the less of good I feel. You know, so if I'm fully present and fully in the moment, I feel much better. Mm. So when I go on to TikTok, I never really, I never suffer from anxiety. But TikTok nearly gives me anxiety because it's so just, you know, it's just so stimulating, you know, constant, constant, constant. So um, I go in, we have a little way of doing it, post a little video, don't look at anything, come back out again. So, yeah, um, so yeah but you know, it's, it's just another skill. It's just another way of communicating. And that's what I love about something like TikTok that comes along that wouldn't be natural, say to me, is that it just forces me to think a little more about how to communicate with people about what I'm doing. So it's a new skill. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for today. And thank you for sharing um, parts of you. Um, You're and welcome. Thank you for letting me in. Yeah. So... That's it. Thank you very much, Neil and Marco. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. We are so grateful to you for listening and being here with us. You can find more videos on YouTube. We have five episodes. If you like what you've heard and seen today, you can check us out in more depth. Our Instagram is The Healing Forest. The website is thehealingforest.ie. Loads of offerings, loads of good stuff. We would love if you made contact with us and gave us some feedback. See you in the forest. <laughs>